Wilkinson here. Good afternoon. I am still in Dartmouth, Massachusetts with my son and his family. And as you probably know, I interviewed him last week when I got here, and now he wants to interview me, which is a little bit scary because having a smart attorney ask you questions may not be what I want, but I think it would be good for me, and so I'm going to do it. So here we go. Wilkinson here. I'm with my son Dave in Dartmouth, my last day here before I go back to Palm Springs tomorrow. I interviewed him last week, and now he wants to interview me. So since it's my podcast, I get one question, and then I'm going to turn it over to you. So I interviewed you, and you said, well, I want to interview you. Why'd you say that? Just so you can feel yourself in the hot seat. Great. Let's go for it. I'm turning this over to you. Okay. What are you most nervous about me asking you? <laughs> That's no fair. Actually, nothing. Just the idea. You are an attorney. I think that was the scariest part. It's like, uh-oh, he's going to, what do you call it? Not cross-examine. What do you call it when you're main, the main examination? And direct. It, yeah, direct examination. So, But I'm I'm up one for it. Okay, good. All right. I, w I won't be too brutal. Don't worry. Well, you I'm said not. I was too easy on you. Yeah, well, I'm not going to be that easy on you. Oh, okay. So don't, don't get funny. any false expectations there. All right. All right. So I know your audience is uh, a lot of gay men and stuff like that. So let's start with that. So when did you discover that you were gay? When I was in France in late 99. So did you discover that you had ants in your underpants at that time? <laughs> no, I mean, I knew I was attracted to men, but... I, did, I honestly didn't know I was gay my whole life, so I just knew I was attracted to men, but I never thought it through. And then when I was in, I went with two friends to uh, France, and one was like an obnoxious American tourist, so I didn't want to spend three weeks with them. So I told them to go on their way, and then this was in 99, so before the internet, and really before before the cell phones had what they have today. So I was basically alone, so I looked at my whole life, and I said, duh. That's how it happened. I didn't know that much about being gay, but I just came to the conclusion that's who I am. And the main thing was being authentic. So I've always, that's been a high priority of mine. If that's who I was, that's why I came out the way I did to everyone, because I want to be authentic, whoever I am. Do you think that, I mean, for me, I've slept with tens of thousands of women and I don't describe myself as a whore per se. But do you wait? You tens of thousands? <laughs> no, you haven't. <laughs> I, I'm not even close to double digits. So, all right. Just so my wife knows, that was a joke. All right. So, do you define yourself as being gay, or is that part of you? It's part of me. What was your biggest fear about coming out? Rejection by the boys, pretty primarily. You and your brothers. Got it. And what would you do, or what? How difficult do you think it would be for people who are gay who live in places that are not as accepting as the United States, like if somebody's in Russia right now? How would you have dealt with that situation? Well, I don't know because I'm not in Russia, but I mean, everything is on the down low. I mean, different cultures have different things. I mean, there's some Middle Eastern countries, for example, where, you know, you can get killed for being gay, but a lot of the quote unquote married guys have sex with guys and that's acceptable to them so that it's like a big double standard okay switching gears all right tell me about your parents and tell me about your parents whoa <laughs> it's interesting that you asked that because when i was sitting here waiting for you to come up here to the carriage house i was thinking about it and 
I actually wished that I could have put my father on a thing like this and hear what he has to say, because I realize I really don't know that much about my parents or about my, nothing about my grandparents. Like my, you know, as you know, I'm James Wilkinson, the eighth. So my father was the seventh and his father obviously was the sixth, but that's all I know about him. I know the fact that he was James Wilkinson, the sixth, and I know that uh, he died a couple days before my sister Sunday was born in 1951, I think it was. And so that's all I know about him. Of course, as you get older and you get closer to the precipice of you being the last one, you you think about stuff. I mean, I can remember after my parents died thinking, oh, I want to call up, call them up and tell them blah, blah, blah. And then I realized they're no longer there. There's no one, you know, to talk to. And for me, since I have, my parents are both gone and my two Joanne and Sunday, my sisters that I grew up with are gone. I mean, I have my younger brother, Dale, and my sister, Don, who I always referred to them as the second litter, but we were never close. I mean, I went in the army when Dale was five. And so I don't even have that to call them up and say, you know, what, what about this or what about that? So, but anyway, getting back to my parents, your question, but that, that's my thought generally on that. But I, you, you may not have known this, but grandma, <laughs> before she met pop was an underwear model. Did you know that? I had no idea. She was an underwear model and then she became a radio preacher. Do you know that? I did not know that. So she does explain where I get my good looks from though. There you go. Yeah. Well, so, so it's kind of like, whoa, one thing, I mean, slide from one side to the other. And my father always took a passive role on everything. My mother was always the leader. So when she was on the radio, he used to do music. Of course, you'd never have this nowadays, but back in the day. And I don't remember any of this because it was basically pretty much before my time even. But he used to play the harmonica. Do you remember that? Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. So he would play the harmonica on the radio with her. <laughs> That's funny. Yeah. But um, and she was a chalk talk artist. Do you know what that is? No. So she would go around to churches. She was uh, an amazing artist. And she would do, she would basically preach as she had these giant sheets of paper up, you know, up toward the front of the, you know, the church. And uh, she would do like these scenes that she could do in like 10 minutes. She would, that, that was a big thing, like in the, I think, I don't know, 50s or something like that. She was also a perfectionist and she basically destroyed all of, most of the art that she created, she destroyed. I can remember a couple, a couple paintings. There was one that was really cool. She did when she was 12 and it was, it was amazing. And we were living in an apartment in Buffalo on, I think Elm Street or something like that. And, uh, the lady downstairs that owned the house, she was being cared for other people and she passed away and the, they came in and cleaned out her estate. The attic was full of stuff and the antique dealer took that painting that grandma had painted and it was gone. So wow. that was sad. Actually, we were talking before about, you know, what would you want as a memento or something of, of all of us? And kind of a sad memory is, so when I was five, we moved to Franklinville, New York, which was 50 miles from Buffalo. My father, he worked in Buffalo at a creamery. So he would drive 50 miles in back in the day. I mean, that was like snow time. So he would be, you know, driving these horrible things for hours going and coming. And we took in aunt, my Aunt Teresa's three kids, Harry, Barbara, and David. 
And because she was looking back, she was probably a prostitute and a drug addict, I'm guessing, because the state took her kids. And so they were, they tried to adopt them. And so they came to live with us. So we went from a family of three kids to six kids instantly. They bought this house. It was similar to what you have here. It was like one of the biggest houses in town and it was called the gold miners cabin. And it had a turret, remember with a round, the windows were all round going around it. They were curved and it was three floors. It had a dance floor on the top floor and full of fireplaces similar to your house here. Anyway, things got tough money-wise. And I remember my father had a ring from his father and it was basically the only thing he had. And he, of course, back in the day, there wasn't like super grocery stores, but he actually gave the guy his ring for food one day and to, to help the family. So, but I, I always felt really bad about that, that the connection was gone. Had you met him? Your, your grandmother nope. before? No, nope. I was probably two, two or three years old when he died. And I don't remember him at all. I saw pictures and that's all I know. He was portly, big <laughs> glasses or little wire rim round glasses. Kind of a big guy. My favorite memory of your, your dad was he, we would sit around and have either hot chocolate or tea and dip our bread in the tea, right. hot chocolate and eat it. Right. What's your favorite memory of your dad? Hmm. I think building, uh, well, it was, I don't know what you would even call them. It would be a, like a go-kart with no engine. <laughs> what do you call them? They're like made a soapbox? Like a soapbox thing, yeah. So, but he would get, uh, of course, they had baby carriages back then. So he would find an old one somewhere, pick it up in the garbage somewhere, take the wheels and the axle off. And we would, basically, it was a board the back axle would be stationary, you know, boards across, and then he'd bolt that in. And then you you had a cross piece on the front of a board that had a bolt in the middle, so it was bolted down, and so it'd swivel. And then you would put the carriage wheels on that, and then you would have a rope in a hole on each side of it, and that's how you would steer. You'd pull a rope one way or the other. But that was fun. He He taught me a lot about building stuff. He wasn't exactly a... A contractor. I can remember him taking a, just cutting a hole in a wall in a house we were running and putting a doorway in with no header. <laughs> but as far as I know, it didn't fall down. But, but, uh, he taught me a lot about how to use tools and stuff, which has been very helpful. I thought at one point you told me that he worked on, um, high rises before. Is that, oh, the accurate? bridge. So the peace bridge between Niagara Falls and, uh, between the U.S. and Canada, Niagara Falls. Yeah, he they were putting that bridge in, and he decided to have a nap up on the girders. <laughs> How like, high do you wait, think that was? I, I don't know. It was hundreds of feet. But he just, like, had lunch and laid down and went to sleep, and he got fired for that. <laughs> that was before they had all the safety things now. But he was quite a character. He was He was Canadian... And he was also legally blind in one eye, so he never went in the military. But there was a thing, I forget what you call it, it was a CC something, like a youth thing that during the probably like the 30s or 40s that they went around and built parks and trails and stuff like that. And he used to, do, he was part of that too. So that was pretty cool. Do you miss him? Yeah. I wish that I, 
I never really knew him. That's the bad part about it. Because yeah. he, he was very quiet and always kept to himself. And my mother was so, <laughs> you know, out there, the preacher and the boss, basically. Mm-hmm. It was Lois's way or no way. <laughs> so, um, okay. What about, uh, what's your favorite memory of um, Sunday and Joanne? Hmm. So Joanne's your older sister and six years older and Sunday was three years younger and there was Sharon. You knew about that, right? Uh, no. Oh yes. Sharon was between Joanne and myself three years in between. So we know my parents had sex every three years, (laughs) (laughs) but, uh, yeah, she died at birth. So Joanne, she was just a character. I think my favorite thing that she told me about, she used to do stuff and not tell my parents, but her and her girlfriend hopped a train once <laughs> and like went like a couple towns away before they could get off and they had to walk back. And that, I think that same girlfriend, they were, they were kind of crazy, but she used to eat lard and mustard sandwiches, her girlfriend. Oh. <laughs> she was interesting. She met John, her husband. She was like 18. And he was like 26, and it was a whole long story. John was at a bar once before they got married, and he gave the guy a $20 bill for some a drink or something. And the guy gave him money back for a five or 10. He goes, I gave you a 20. And, he, and he, so he helped himself to some money <laughs> to get his money back, and he got arrested and spent some time in jail for that, actually. Well, Which didn't make my parents very happy, but she ended up marrying him anyway, so... And they had five kids. They they also had the largest dog I've ever seen, and they used to feed it. This was this was toward the end. So when she um, lived in Depew, New York, outside Buffalo, yes, okay. They used to. Fe- I remember they were feeding it like steak and stuff from the dinner table, and it was Ugh. the biggest dog I've ever seen, <laughs> like round. Um. Oh, Sunday. And then Sunday. Oh, yep. Sunday. Hmm. I I just remember her jet black hair her big brown eyes and the way she just sat on the floor. Actually, Henry was close to sitting the way that she sat. Like she sits on the floor with her knees bent and the legs out, kind of like a frog. And I still don't know how she ever did that. <laughs> but she uh, she lived a really hard life. She, she became a, she had juvenile diabetes when she was eight and almost died. And as you probably remember, she got rheumatoid arthritis later. Just had a really, really hard life. But she seemed to make do with it and made something out of it. How, much long, is she, how long was she in a wheelchair? I would say five or ten years at least. So she was bedridden when she died. Um. All right. Switching topics a little bit. Um. How were how were you as a student growing up? I know you made fun of me during our conversation about how I was a terrible student. So let's hear how you. I probably did a little bit better than you. I got I got quite a few A's and stuff, and I did I did okay. Did you know I quit high school? Uh, I think you told me that at one yeah, point. Yeah, I was a sophomore. My parents had the estate antique store at the time. I was I think sixteen, which legally you could quit high school when you were sixteen. So they changed my schedule. It pissed me off. And I went in the office (laughs) and said, I'm out of here. I quit. And I walked out. And no guidance counselor, my parents, nobody ever asked me anything. I just did it. 
And so, oh, like a month later, I go, duh, (laughs) that was not, that was not a smart move. So I got my GED and then I went to Bible school and then I went to college. So did you ever get into trouble at school? Mm, No, I was pretty straight arrow, which is nice for a gay guy, but I did get in trouble in the army once because I was in the army reserves. I went AWOL. (laughs) We're going to get to that in a minute. Oh, (laughs) okay. Uh, no, I think other than quitting school when I, I should have had some guidance on that one, but yeah. What's the most trouble you or your siblings that you can remember that, uh, either you or your siblings got into at home or at school? I didn't get into a lot of trouble. And I, looking back, I would say I never felt accepted and I actually, I never felt loved that much by my parents. And so I was always having to do stuff to f- try to get the feeling I wanted. And so I was I was pretty much a good kid. I remember when I was like 13, every every Sunday, I would get up and before anybody else got up and I would clean the entire house and I would make dinner for everybody every Sunday for like, I don't know how many, more than a year. Oh. But I did that to try to buy love, I think, looking back. Yeah. All right, Henry and Jack, if you're listening to this, I love you, but you could take a note. <laughs> You could clean a little. Um, all right. So tell me about tell me about the um, army. First question: Did you have to do the gas chamber at yeah. basic training? Yes. What do you remember about that? It stung a little bit. That's it. Yep. Did you throw up? No. So the why- worst part about the army doing active duty basic was I failed obstacle course because <laughs> I'm klutzy. So you know the mud, the big mud hole, swampy thing. You have to crawl on it. I no, no, you go on a log and stuff across it. No, I fell in. (laughs) And probably the scariest thing was because this was during Vietnam. So it was the real thing, basic. It wasn't like we're playing games. It was like real. So you actually had a thing toward the end of basic where you crawled on your belly through an obstacle course with real bullets flying over your head. They I don't know why they did that, come to think of it. (laughs) But they did. Is that the one where you go under barbed wire too? Yeah, under barbed wire, you go through things over law. You've got to like stay on your stomach and don't lift your head up. And one of the weirdest things about, oh, let's see. So I'll I'll tell you a story. So I was 19 when I was in reserves. So when I was in, it must have been, I, I don't know, you can do the math. I think this is right. Third grade or fourth grade, something like that. It was a spring day. It was beautiful outside. And I said to myself, I, I was bored in school. I hated it. And I, I just said, I wish it was 10 years from now, right? So I had never thought about that until I was in the army sitting in a bleacher while they were shooting empty ammo things that were sealed up, showing you what would happen to your head if you got hit with a bullet. <laughs> it would blow it apart. So that's what that's what they were teaching about. But during that time, I, I instantly went back. And I figured it out whenever, I I may be telling the date wrong when I started, but it was exactly 10 years before. And I was like, boom, here I am 10 years later, which raises the question, did I really live the 10 years or was I transported? (laughs) I'll let you figure that out. (laughs) Okay. Why did you join the army? Because Keith, my ex-good friend, said, oh, let's join the reserve so we get out of the draft. (laughs) So I joined a... The 365th Medical Unit, I signed up to be a medic. And after I was in, they 
kind of cheated me and made me an electrician. I had to go to electrician school. And then I became a truck driver, which you know me, that doesn't fit. But thinking like a truck driver, but thinking back, I think that I don't know if being a medic and everything you would have seen would have been a very good idea for me. Because I am like you sensitive in some ways, and I'm not sure that would have been a good idea. Do you think that was there a chance that you would have got drafted if you didn't join the reserves? Yeah, I think after that, they came out with uh, the number thing. And I think I had like a really, I would have been out. Yeah. So in hindsight, maybe it was a good thing. Yeah. Um, all right. And then you went to college. I went to Bible school and then college. So tell, what was the reason to go to Bible school? Because I was a religious fanatic due to grandma. <laughs> um, what did you think? I was, that- was going to be a minister. And then I, somewhere along the line, figured out, I don't really like being in a group stalking because that doesn't work. So when I was at Nyack College outside New York City after Bible school, I switched to an English lit major. Don't ask me any English lit questions because I'm ignorant. But I jammed that for like a year and a half, got an English lit degree with a philosophy minor and dumped the theology stuff I didn't go on to seminary like I was going to go to. But you were involved in the church a lot after that. Yes, too much. And what do you think, if you were the pastor of a church today, what church would you be the pastor of? Well, since I don't go to church any longer, I would. it would be one that was open and affirming, but not necessarily a gay church. There was, there was a church in Seattle that I started going to before I moved to Palm Springs, and it was close. It was a big mega church. The pastor that was leading it read like a hundred books on gay stuff and that, and he he said, we have to be accepting to everybody and not just like you can sit in the pew and, you know, shut up, but you can be on staff if you're qualified to be on staff. And it, and it costs the church big time. They eventually went from a mega church down to meeting in a school because they lost millions of dollars and all of, all the money walked out when he did that. But it would be a church like that. So my read on churches today is most of them are either anti gay, which of course wouldn't work for me. Uh, They're accepting, but like I said, sit in the pew and shut up because I think they do it partly just to be PC. And then there's the gay churches that would preach Jesus got in the boat and somehow make that about being gay, which has nothing to do with anything. And so I don't like either of those extremes, something in the middle that just loves and accepts everybody. If I found one, what was the favorite, your, the, your favorite house that you've ever lived in? Whoa. Probably 163rd. And what did you like about 163rd? Well, we were there for 14 years. <laughs> so that was a biggie. Well, all you boys grew up there. Yeah. So that was, that was that's good. the house I remember. Yeah. That's that's my favorite. Now, as a p- aside here, so when I grew up, I, my parents, I think, bought houses once or two, three times maybe. And they, my mother loved a wallpaper. Once everything was wallpapered 10 times, she wanted to sell a house or move rent. That's grandma. So, but I moved all of the time and it was really not a good experience. I, I don't remember what grade it was, third or sixth or something, that I was in three different schools that year because we moved so many times. So I think one of them must be part gypsy. I don't know. <laughs> but I remember being a kid and having, I remember it was the second floor of this place we were living in. 
it was like a ha- big wide hallway with kind of like a dead end area where railings are, you know, where they go up to the next floor. Mm-hmm. And I had a big cardboard box and that was my house. I, I, I had no, I didn't feel a place. I never felt a place. So the fact that we lived there for 14 years, that was good. And then you've lived in a bunch of different houses since then. That's because of my realist. Well, part gypsy is embedded in me. And then the real estate investment stuff. Yeah. What was by, by my waterfront place in Edmonds, I did live, I did own that 14 years as well. That was a long time. Yeah, that was, I'll give you your answer. That was by far the coolest house you lived in. Oh, I forgot about that one, actually. I was thinking more <laughs> when you guys were around and yeah, that that was pretty cool. No, I, but I the did one, like. The 163rd house was a good Okay, house. so that, I would say my, my former life was 163rd and my current life was sunset. That's good. That's an acceptable <laughs> answer. What was the, your favorite renovation project that you did? My kitchen. If you remember, I don't know if you remember this, but. On 2nd Street, are you talking about? The 2nd Street kitchen went into the triplex because yeah. the lady ripped out a new kitchen and sold me a $40,000 kitchen for a couple hundred bucks. <laughs> and it fit perfectly into the owner's unit on my triplex. I was amazed she was that stupid. <laughs> but that I, des- I designed that, everything about that. And that was my favorite. Yeah. Cool. Although the one on 163rd, if you know the story on that kitchen, I went to Norway on a ministry trip and I found this cabinet place that had amazing, they were like Norwegian cabinet makers, like furniture. And then they painted like five coats of paint on them, white cabinets. Mm -hmm. It's called Ikea. No, it's not Ikea. (laughs) (laughs) And they, uh, no, they opened up a branch in uh, Mount Lake Terrace. And that's where we got that kitchen for that thing. And it was a nightmare because everything was metric that they sent and everything was feet and inches on this side. So it was like a nightmare getting it done, but we got done and it looked pretty cool. So I know that you and mom went, both went to Norway different times. And I don't remember which of you brought me back the knife, but I still have the wooden handle knife. That's about like a six inch knife. I have no idea how you got that on the airplane. But that well, they was would back have done in the that. day. Well, when... that was eight. I went in 1988, so that that was before the terrorism stuff, right? You could have knives and guns on the planes before that, <laughs> <laughs> and bombs. I remember that uh, one of the projects that we did on that Second Street house in Edmonds is I helped you build the skylight. That was a really cool project that taught me a lot about drywalling and how much I hated it. Well, you and John did that, didn't you? Right. Didn't he help? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, for sure. That was pretty cool. It's too bad what she did to that house. Say levy. Yep. Not your problem. I got my money. I don't care. Move yep. on. All right. So obviously, I'm your son. You have. I have two brothers. What was your funniest parenting moment that you can remember? Oh. I'll give you mine while you think about it. I. Although, I don't know if it's my funniest parenting moment, but the one I always think of immediately is Meredith and I were... We went to a, we took a drive and we went on a hike, I think. Um, And then we were at this little town in the middle of nowhere and they were having like a little parade or something like that. And Henry was probably, I don't know, six months old or nine months old or something like that. And uh, he had a blowout in his diaper that reached (laughs) his hair. It was the grossest thing it just was like a giant explosion. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Funniest. Uh, I don't know. I think after the fact stuff 
the thing, I think I was, we were talking about this or I was talking to Meredith, but my, I have all these systems I'd come up with. So my token system for TV, remember that? (laughs) (laughs) So I would, I would, I made a box and you guys had so many tokens to watch basically whatever TV shows you wanted within reason, so many hours per week. And you had to use a token for, I think every half hour. And then was it you that told me you were cheating and stealing the tokens? That was Jim. Oh, Jim. Yeah. (laughs) But you stole tokens, right? I didn't. I don't remember that I did. Really? Yeah. I thought you all did it. Uh, I don't, I don't think I did. Well, finding stuff out after the fact can be (laughs) some of the funniest stuff. You think you're doing such a good job and then. I think it was like an hour a week of TV, by the way. No, it was more than that. I don't know about that. All right. How about your scariest parenting moment? That would have to be Jim's car accident. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Where he almost died. Yeah, that was a bad one. What's the memory, The good? Uh, what's a good memory that you remember most about raising three boys? I think one of my best thinking about it was how you all got along. It was really good that you included each other. And I really liked that because you you were approximately six years apart which of course nobody did any calculations to figure out we had, I don't know what it is, 18 or 20 years of so of teenagers in a row by doing that, which is not a good idea, but it worked out because you had enough distance between you that you cared for each other and yet you didn't ignore each other. I mean, you did sometimes, you left a kid home or whatever, but, but you did a lot together, all of you. And that I think that's the thing I like, one of the things that comes to mind. Yep, we did. We did a lot of outside and sports stuff. If you have any advice to young parents out there, what would that advice be? Don't overwork. That's the thing I like watching you with the boys that you have made. I mean, you're an attorney and most, I mean, I, you know, in my real estate career, a lot of doctors and attorneys and they don't do what you're doing. And I tip my hat to you on that. And I think it's really good how involved you are because a lot of, a lot of fathers don't do that. And they regret it later. But I don't think you'll have many regrets because you're always doing stuff with the boys and you make, you make time for them. I appreciate that. And that's, I, I do. And there's nothing I'd rather do anyway. So, uh, cause who likes to work? Um, all right. Most successful thing that you've ever done in your life and not having kids. You can't pick that. Okay. Um, I made some good real estate deals. I mean, I've made money on properties. That's probably my best thing. And creating, I love creating. What is the best thing that you've created in your mind? That would have to be the Edmonds Waterfront triplex. Yeah. Because that was a dump when I bought it. Total dump. And it was a shining masterpiece when I sold it. In fact, I fin like I do in a lot of things. I finished everything just before I sold it. Um, so you mentioned real estate. Why did you get into, um, real estate as a career? Do you remember my job at Terrytown house? You were like two, you would, do you know what that was? No. Terrytown house. I worked for a Jewish entrepreneurial cajillionaire, former time life editor named Robert Schwartz. And he, to make a long story short, he had the motel on the mountain in Rockland County, which is all, this is where I went to school outside New York city. And so IBM came to him one day and said, this is kind of weird, but we want to rent your motel, take half, we'll pay for everything, take the beds out and stuff out of the bedrooms, put it in storage and put tables and chairs. And we want to 
have our staff, you know, workers captive there for a week. And they kept doing this like time after time the first year. And then he said, this is a business. And he, he created the concept of a conference center. And so that's where I worked. Now, what was the question? Because I, I was going somewhere with that. Why, why you got involved in real estate? Oh, real estate. So, so Schwartz also, so this was 1978 when I left there. But in 1978, I had worked my way up from front desk clerk to director of sales at the conference center. And so he had all kinds of things that went on. He had Judith Christ, who used to be a movie critic for uh, TV Guide and all that stuff. She'd bring movie stars producers, directors, and they do film festivals once a month. The, the idea was he had a conference center with business people during the week, and what do you do on the weekend to get money coming in? So he did that. He had think tank stuff from uh, people from all kinds of politicians from D.C., uh, Margaret Mead, the anthropologist, Gail She, the author, all these people would come there. That was interesting. But he also ran a school for entrepreneurs in 1970s, before anybody even knew what that word was. I mean, really, what's an entrepreneur? So I went in, didn't tell anybody that I worked at the conference center because I wanted to experience it. And it was like two weekend things. So a weekend of classes, blah, blah, blah. During the first, during the week, they had to write a business plan, which many of them had businesses, but never did a business plan. Then the second weekend, there was more teaching, but he had venture capitalists, like real live venture capitalists there in the 70s. So think Shark Tank. Oh, yeah. But he was doing it back then. So one of the guys I met, his idea was to buy these ticky-tacky 1930s office buildings in Manhattan. And he had he was just working. He had just bought one a while back. It was, I think, nine floors. And so he went in and they gutted every floor. He kept one unit. I think he kept the top unit for himself. And they he took the 1930s deco copper and brass elevator out of it and put it in his own unit and made it into a bathroom because they had to put a new elevator in. Like they had to do electric plumbing and that kind of stuff. But they sold raw space and he was getting the unheard of crazy high price for $100,000 per floor at that time. So anyway, when we moved to the Seattle area, I thought I want to do renovations and stuff like that. Well, the problem in Everett or Seattle is there's nothing to renovate. <laughs> so I got into real estate thinking that would be a good basis for doing the whole thing. But then, you know, you had Pioneer Square and you had Fairhaven up in Bellingham. And so there really wasn't anything around there to develop that way. So I just stayed in real estate. So that's how I got into it. That was a long way of saying, oh, <laughs> did you ever want to do anything other than real estate before that? Do you, did you have any career aspects? I would have liked to have been a designer and, or an architect, I think. Yeah. I probably could have been a lawyer too, but I don't know if that's fun for me. It's not fun. No, I think the creative, some creative, probably architect, I would like that. Craig, it's a good creative job to have. Yep. All right. If you were an architect, what kind of architect would you be? Residential, commercial? I don't know. I think it's like you with law. You have to get into it and see what you like, what you gravitate to. I mean, but it's probably most likely likely residential because it's more individual. It's not like corporate-y and all that kind of stuff. All right. Rapid fire. Don't think too much about the answers to these questions. <laughs> What's one thing that you wished you didn't do in your life that you did? I wish that when Sunday 
the weekend Sunday died. I wish that I hadn't got on the plane because she wanted me to stay there a couple more days and I had to quote unquote get back to work and she died two days later alone. So that's a regret. What's the best gift you've ever given someone? Don't make it gross. Listening to them. What's the best gift you've ever received? Being accepted. What's your favorite airline? Alaska. What's the best place you've ever been? It's probably a toss between Italy and France. Where you found the under ants in your underpants? Yep. What's the worst name you've ever been called? Chicken arm. Chicken arm? Why that? Because I couldn't throw a ball when I was a kid. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, it's never too late to learn how to do it. Show them them they're wrong. Have you ever had your fortune told? No. I was going to ask you, if you've ever had your fortune told, did the fortune come true? But obviously, can't ask you that one. How do you define success in life? Being at peace and um, just being happy, I think. Not striving. What's the most inspirational person or book you've ever come across? I would say book James Doty, Into the Magic Shop. It's it's about the law of attraction, which is an energy type thing written by a neurosurgeon. That's a fantastic book. Hmm. Other than the Bible, but me. <laughs> <laughs> Who makes you laugh the most? It can be a friend, a comic, an author, a celebrity. Hmm. I have various friends that make me laugh, but I don't know that I could pinpoint one of them. Have you ever laughed so hard that you spit up whatever you were drinking? Oh, of course. Have you ever done karaoke? No, a couple times. I don't do that. What's your song? I don't have a song. If I you, don't. I do not sing. Have you heard me sing? <laughs> yeah. I don't want to hear it either. But if you no. were forced to sing karaoke, what would be your song? I'm. I, that's. I'm drawing a blank on that one. Have you ever dreamed of making out with a rapper? With a rapper? Uh huh. Not like a candy wrapper, like a rapper rapper. No. The best came up with these. You were Meredith. (laughs) I did. Who is the best looking celebrity right now? Mm. Well, since I don't watch TV or movies, hmm. Uh, Celebrity and what? Does it have to be like entertainment? No, whatever you want. Aubrey Marcus. Who's that? You have to look him up. Okay. He's a podcaster. Do you think Instagrammers are celebrities if they have a lot of followers? No. What's the most pain you've ever been in? Not like physical pain. Not physical pain? I mean, physical pain, not emotional Right, pain. right. Uh, the time that a tree branch snapped, I was showing a lot to somebody when I worked in real estate up north in Northwest, and a, I think they walked through and snapped a branch, and it went right into my eye and cut my eye, and I ended up with an ulcerated cornea, which what they the fix for it, believe it or not, when it gets that bad is they scrape your cornea off and it grows a new one. So I would wake up with that, that whole situation. They, they ended up doing it three or four times. It didn't take very painful. And I would wake up. What happened was with the ulcerated cornea, your eyelid would stick to your eye and then you'd move or something. And so I would wake up sitting up screaming because it would be so painful. Like it would be, it felt just like somebody took a knife and stuck in the middle of your eye. That's what it felt like. That sounds like it hurts. So the most important question that I think as a follow-up to that, that your listeners will want to know is that, did you sell the house? It was a lot. Oh, the lot to your buyers, right? And I don't think it. I did. I think we were just looking. Did you end <laughs> up selling them anything? I don't they remember. Owed you There's thousands point. of buyers. I don't know. Over 40 years, that's a lot of buyers. What do you like most about doing Airbnb in the couch surfing thing? I like meeting people from all over the world. 
and learning about theirs. I want to, I like hearing their stories, hence the podcast. And I like learning about their cultures, not from what you would read in a book or on TV, but hearing it from them. It's, I have some great, wonderful people from everywhere that have told, lived with me for short periods. That's been great. I do think you'll keep doing that. I would like to keep doing Airbnb, not couch surfing site went down the tube. I won't do that anymore. Last question. I, re- I recall you telling me one time, and I think it was like your 40th birthday, and I thought you were insanely old at that point, and said, <laughs> don't you feel old? And you said to me, I still feel like the same person I was when I was 12. Right. Do you still feel like this, that's, do you have that same feeling now? Absolutely. And actually, your grandmother said that, a similar thing to me, you know? So I don't know if you remember any of this, but when she got up in her 80s, she took every mirror out of the house. She would not have a mirror in the house. She refused to have it. She she didn't want to see what she looked like. But one day she said to me, it's just me inside. Yeah, it's true. Yep. All right. That was the last question I had. Is there anything that I didn't ask you that you're dying to tell me? Mm. No, you covered a lot of stuff. (laughs) (laughs) It was fun. And I hope you learned something too. I did. The thing that stands out the most is grandma was an underwear model. I want (laughs) to, I'm proud and also want to throw up in my mouth at the same time. (laughs) Well, we can end on that, but I'm going to let you end the podcast since it's your podcast. Well, thanks for listening. That's it, folks. Okay. Bye.